Hi, Pastor Chad Tucker here from Doxa Church in Burlington, North Carolina. Thank you for joining us in our study of the book of the Revelation. To learn more about our new ministry and to find out about how you can partner with us, visit us online at doxaburlington.com. That's D-O-X-A burlington.com. We hope you enjoy the message. The book of Revelation is where we're going to begin, and we are in the second part of a a message on the kingdom of God. So as we're making our way, kind of verse by verse, phrase by phrase, through the book of Revelation, we're coming across concepts and ideas that perhaps we're familiar with, but perhaps we don't know where the biblical foundation is or how it relates or how it affects us. We have already seen in the study of the prologue that you can be blessed, right, simply reading and hearing the prologue. And there's so much richness in here. And rather than quickly going through it, I thought we would just kind of walk and pace slowly through it. And it's a good thing because we've learned a lot about Jesus Christ. So let's read uh, Revelation 1-5 where we learn some things about Jesus Christ, who he is. We see the threefold description of Christ. And then we see the threefold work of Christ as it's uh, delineated here in the book of Revelation. So Revelation chapter 1. So we don't begin reading in the middle of a sentence. I'm going to read verse 4. And it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. So here we saw the Trinity and normally in places in Scripture we'll see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But here we see the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son. It puts the focus of the attention on the Son. Now it gives us the threefold description of Jesus as found here in Revelation 1.5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth... To him who, in that threefold activity, the threefold actions of Christ, to him who loves us, present tense loves us, and secondly, released us from our sins by his blood. That's the second activity of Christ we see here. And we're in the middle of a series. This is part two of verse six. And he has made us to be a kingdom, a kingdom priest to his God and father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And I love it when God says, amen. So let it be. So where we are in our study is we're looking at this idea of a kingdom. The reason we need to look at the idea of kingdom, because it says here that he has made us to be a kingdom. And if God has made us anything, then I don't know about you, but I want to know what that is and what that means. Because I promise you, it is good. It is good. And so we're kind of unpacking this idea of kingdom. It's hard for us to grasp because we don't live in a kingdom with the king 
uh, in terms of the United States of America, we live in a democracy with a president, which is very, very different. In fact, those two really can't even be compared at all. But last week in our study, we did a, a, a brief overview, and we said that the, the start of this and said that the kingdom idea is found all the way in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 49, where it says that the scepter shall not depart from him. And the scepter is a king's staff that shows his authority, but also shows his sovereignty, shows his sovereignty. And we noticed last week that as we walked through the various passages of Scripture, we only touched on a few of them um, about the idea of kingdom. We learned that God uh, has established a throne and one from uh, a descendant of David will assail the throne. And through him, uh, all of the world will be blessed. But but there's going to be one that's going to sit on David's throne who will reign and who will rule forever. And the Bible says that people will reign with him. And so as we looked at the idea and concept of kingdom last week, even in the New Testament, we learned from Luke chapter 1, and we learned in Matthew's gospel that Jesus is the king who is the son of David to sit upon David's throne. And Jesus, first of all, John the Baptist, before he baptized Jesus, said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then Jesus was baptized, and he began to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the people were kind of getting very, very excited because the kingdom of God was coming, the kingdom of heaven. Those terms are used interchangeably. Uh, Sometimes the Jews would not want to uh, use God's name. They would be afraid that they would take God's name in vain, so they would substitute the kingdom of heaven for the kingdom of God to be sure that they did not take God's name uh, in vain. And so what we saw in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is we have this idea of Jesus being king, speaking his to, to his kingdom constituents, uh, particularly about life in the kingdom. We saw that Jesus had power and authority to raise the sick, to raise the dead, to heal every disease and sickness and all of these things, demonstrating his authority and his sovereignty as king. The only thing that Jesus did not do is he did not go in and begin to reign. In fact, what we see is, is after you get to Matthew chapter chapter 12 and chapter 13, once the national religious Jewish leaders rejected Christ at that particular point, Jesus says in his sovereignty, and according to Acts chapter 2 verse 23, according to the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, he said that the kingdom is not going to happen now. It's not going to come in now. It's going to come in at the end of of the age, and we saw that in Matthew chapter 13. But what we also saw is that if the kingdom of God had come in at that particular time, according to Matthew chapter 9 and chapter 10, it would have been a primarily Jewish king because Jesus says to go and preach the kingdom in Matthew. Matthew's Gospel chapter 10, he says to go and preach the kingdom and heal the sick and and, and raise the dead and do all these things. But he also said, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
So he said, don't go to the Gentiles and say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And don't go to the Samaritans and say that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But only go to the lost sheep of Israel. Tell them to repent. Get right with God because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Beloved, if Jesus had come in and if Jesus at this point or any point in the future, if he would have made his way to Jerusalem to uh, assail the throne and take control and begin to reign, there's no indication in the Gospels anywhere that Gentiles would have been included in that kingdom. But the kingdom is coming at the end of the age. And yes, there will be a kingdom, but there are events that happen before that. Before we talk about those events, even before Jesus, after he died on the cross and when he ascended into heaven, as he was talking to his disciples, his disciples said, will you at this time restore your kingdom? Will you usher in the kingdom at this particular point in time? So we have this gap, and this gap is what we need to kind of understand and talk about today and to see how this gap between Matthew 13 and the kingdom coming at the end of the age, how it affects us and deals with us. And we need to understand who is in the kingdom, who is part of the kingdom. And Jesus says in Revelation, talking to the church's Gentiles, he has made us a kingdom. Then we need to understand how then did we get into the kingdom and who all are who all are a part of the kingdom. So in Matthew chapter 13, the, the, Jesus said the kingdom is going to come at the end of the age. And then we get something unusual. Um, Jesus goes on and continues to do his ministry. And just look in Matthew chapter 16, if you will. Matthew chapter 16, a very familiar passage script. We've looked at this on many occasions. Jesus was in the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he was talking to his disciples. And as he was talking to his disciples, he asked the people, who he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In Matthew chapter 16, verse 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now remember, he's there with his disciples. Jesus has been rejected by the national, uh, spiritual, and religious, religious, uh, spiritual, and political leaders. They have examined Jesus' claims to be God and to be the king, the rightful king, and they have rejected him. Now, you know how that, can you imagine how that would be? Here you are, you've left everything to follow Jesus. And I know here today we're super spiritual. Well, I would be able to recognize Jesus and I'd be able to know that's who it was. Maybe, maybe not. But particularly when those people come out and they say, no, this is not right, it would at least cause you to question, least cause you to go back and to consider who this person is and to validate those claims as well. They could have had some questions. In fact, it's not unusual. We saw in John chapter 6, verse 66, for people to come and see who Jesus is, even be partakers of his miracles. And then the saddest verse in the Bible, John 6, 66, where these disciples walked away and followed him no more. So here in Matthew, Jesus says, so who do you say? Talking to his disciples. But who do you say that I am? 
And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one, as we have said. Clearly, the, 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 the. Clearly, this is who you are. The one, the only. You are the Christ, which means Messiah, which means anointed one. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father it who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my... We would have, and the disciples would have expected him to say, Kingdom... Because in Matthew's gospel, it clearly presents Jesus as the king, the rightful heir to the throne. And Jesus had never used the word church before, but he doesn't use the word kingdom. He doesn't say, and on this truth, I will build my kingdom. He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, it's not that kingdom's not important. Because look at what it says in the very next verse. And I will give you the king, the keys of the church. Is that what he said? Disciples, you're getting the keys to the church. No. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. In fact, that along with those keys comes authority. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So what we need to understand is, is we need to understand the idea of the church and the kingdom. Uh, some people would say that the church is the kingdom. Some would say the Jews had rejected Christ, the Jews had rejected the identity of Jesus, and therefore Jesus was done with them. He washed his hands of them. He started anew with the church and that the church replaces the kingdom. I think I can show you today that, that, that I do not believe that's the case, and hopefully, depending on what you believe, but I want you to understand this. You, you'll agree with that, but I want you to understand this, that on these finer points of the theology, there are many good, solid, Bible-believing Christians who have different ideas and different understandings. And just because someone believes different from us does not mean that they are not our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, if they disagree on the major things, right, then they're not our brothers and sisters in Christ. If they do not believe that Jesus is born of a virgin, you, you can't be saved because Jesus can't be the Savior of the world. If you don't believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven, so there, there's not room on the fundamentals of the faith to have a different perspective, right? But there are people who have studied the Bible, uh, particularly in this case, amillennials. Amillennialism is kind of the viewpoint that they would would be a summary of their view. Who are solid Bible teaching, Bible preaching people who love God, who love His Word, are going to heaven with us, but would hold a different understanding. They would hold that the church replaced Israel uh, and they hold to what's called replacement theology that the church has replaced Israel that God is through and that everything he does he does through the church uh, now 
reason I disagree with that is because the Bible says that there are more than people in the church in the kingdom. And the Bible refers to the church and the kingdom uh, as different entities and yet somehow intricately connected together. So who makes up the church? Who makes up the kingdom? And is there anyone in the kingdom who are who is outside the church? See, that's where the problem comes in. If the church is not the kingdom, and the kingdom is made up of more than the church, then are there people in the kingdom who are not part of the church? And if so, how did they get there? And if so, how did we in the church get into the kingdom? And that's what we're going to study next week. So we'll come back and talk. Kidding. Kidding. Can't do that to you. You ready? Jill, it's okay. It's okay. Bless your heart. She's looking at me. Okay, all right. Okay, all right. We're ready? Oh, yeah. Let's see what the Bible says. We know it's Sybil things. Let's look and see what the Bible says. Now, now, so I think you understand this is important, okay? Because let's be clear. We are part of the kingdom, but when the kingdom first came, it was primarily Jewish-related. I'm going to show you that today. So somehow we, who are part of the church, have become has come into the kingdom. And, but then we also need to see that we're not the only ones there. And how do they get there? Now let me be clear, because I don't want I don't want to. I, I, I like to leave you hanging a little bit. I like to you know kind of tease out. But 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 let's be clear. No one comes into the kingdom apart from Christ. Okay. So let's go ahead and just just get that idea off the table. The only way the person is part of the kingdom of God with Christ as King is they come through Jesus Christ. Okay. And yet, I hope to convince you today that not everyone is in the kingdom is is was part. Is part of the church. Here's what I mean. Here in Matthew chapter 16, we see Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower. So now, how did Jesus establish, start the church? The church, he said, I will build my church. The church did not exist at this particular point in time. Right? There is no church right now. Jesus introduces the word church. Now, it, he didn't make up the word. The word church is the word ecclesia. It means called out one. That was a familiar term in uh, in those days. In the Bible days, the ecclesia were the called out ones. There would be an ecclesia of men who would meet at the city gates, and they would be like the town council and things along those lines. So ecclesia primarily had a political function um, before, and Jesus takes that word and he says I will build my ecclesia ek means out of kaleo called out of called out ones the church is literally the reason why the church is not a building it doesn't matter where the church meets because the church is not a building the church is a people and the people are the called out ones so Jesus says I will build my church I will right so he has to call them out and gather them together to be the church and in order to do that, Jesus must make a way for people who have sinned and fall short of the 
glory of God to be made right with God so they could be gathered together as the called out ones to be the church. And the way that he made that possible is, is, by, is by going to the cross himself, bearing our sin and our shame on his behalf, God the Father coming, and we've teased it, we've talked about this many, many times, God the Father coming, pouring out his wrath on his son on the cross, not because of his sin, but because of your sin and my sin, thereby forgiving us of our sin once we repent of our sins. He forgives us and brings us into the family of God, brings us into the church. In fact, we are baptized into the body of Christ. Uh, baptism. Not separate from water baptism. Spirit baptism. We are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ and become the church. Become the church. Say that again. We are we are baptized. No, no. We are baptized by the Holy Spirit of God. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That baptism, not water baptism. That is spirit baptism into the body of Christ's church. Water baptism is our identification with Christ and proclaiming our salvation to the world. So there's water baptism, which is what we do to, to identify with Christ and finished work on the cross. That's us saying, hey, I've been buried with him in the likeness of death, raised to walk in newness of life. But the way that you get into the church, become part of the church, is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You and I are baptized into the body of Christ. And therefore, even if we're not a member of a local church, we're a member of the body of Christ. Now, I'll tell you this. The New Testament knows nothing about being part of the body of Christ and not being part of a local body of Christ. doesn't know anything about it. So how do we get? Well, this is how. You come, Gentile. You come, sinner. You come, church, into the kingdom of God by the finished work on the cross. And when he purchases our pardon, he does a legal transaction, if you will. And the Bible uses legal language of taking our debt that we owed for sin and giving it to Christ and taking his righteousness that satisfied God's wrath against us and applying it to our account. So Christ takes our sin and our shame and our debt we owe to God because of our sin and he gives us his righteousness so that when Christ sees you and Christ sees me, he sees us through the shed blood of Christ and he sees us as righteous as Christ immediately. That's why you're either saved or you're lost. There is no in-between. Now, now you could be in the part of coming up to the place of salvation. You could be growing and coming to the place where, where all this begins to make sense and you're not saved. 
right? Because knowledge does not save you. Knowledge brings you to the place for you to understand your lostness, to understand that God must save you. And when God saves you, you repent of your sins, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, your debt is forgiven, and when your debt is forgiven, listen, the righteousness of God is, the Bible term, imputed to you. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ so that when God sees you, He sees you as perfect and righteous as Christ because He paid your and my sin debt in full. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. This is so good. Colossians chapter 1. Not my preaching. The the text. The text. Colossians chapter 1. We read this in our opening today, but I want you to uh, I want you to see it. Colossians chapter one, again. Colossians chapter one, verse thirteen. Now look at this. He rescued us. I like that. He rescued us from the domain of darkness. Okay. Now, who is he? He is Christ. Who is us? Believers in the church. In this case, it's the church at Colossae, but this truth extends to all believers everywhere. We could not save ourselves. Christ comes, and through Him, living the perfect, sinless life that only He could live, dying the death on the cross in our place that we should have died, thereby He, when we see that and recognize our lostness and see Him and His holiness and see that we can't save ourselves, God rescues us. So at one point in time in your past, the moment of salvation, He rescued you from what? He rescued you from the domain of darkness. Now remember, when sin entered into the world, it came through Satan. And when God originally judged sin in the book of Genesis, he didn't eradicate it. He didn't wipe it out. What he said was that there would be one coming through the seed of the woman who would ultimately crush the serpent's head and thereby release the world from its curse of sin. I've said this before, but Satan was elevated in status after the fall, not what you and I would have expected, demoted, or even his demise determined. His demise was determined, but he became the prince of the power of the air. And this domain is his domain, and everything, he's the prince of power of the air, he's the little g god of this world, and we live within the domain of darkness. And every one of us who were born into sin are part of the domain of darkness, and we can do nothing but sin. We are in bondage to sin, we can't free ourselves, we can't do anything any different unless one comes to us within the domain of darkness and rescues us. Beloved, that's why salvation is not simply a matter of a good person praying a prayer and walking the aisle and shaking the pastor's hand and signing a card and saying, I'm saved. That's why it's not enough to know what the plan of salvation is. It's not enough to know what salvation is. 
Beloved, you have to see and understand that all these things are true about you, that you are lost in your trespasses and sins, that you cannot save yourself, that you, the Bible says you're dead in your trespasses and sins, you're part of the domain of darkness, and if someone doesn't come and rescue and redeem you, listen, there is no hope for you. And Colossians says this, Colossians says this, 1.13, Colossians says, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness. Okay, great. He rescued us, but what did he do? He rescued us from the domain of darkness, and look at this, and transferred us to what? To the kingdom of his beloved son. The way that you, as a New Testament believer, become part of the kingdom of God is, is God transfers you from the domain of darkness through Christ's finished work on the cross into the kingdom of into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Now, that's great news because now we're part of the kingdom but it also tells you this. It also tells you that there's this church and the people in the church that were rescued and redeemed are now part of this kingdom that already existed before the church and this kingdom that will exist after the church and this kingdom that will exist that we are a part of and will reign and rule with him throughout all of eternity. So if we are now have been brought into the kingdom of God, like any place you walk into that's kind of new, you look around and say, well, who else is here? Can anyone be here apart from the church? Well, I hope to show you biblically today the answer is yes. So where do we begin? What about Old Testament believers? When was the when did when was the church founded? The church was founded after Christ died on the cross, was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and the disciples were gathered in the upper room in the book of Acts, and the Holy Spirit of God came down. That was the birth of the church. Prior to the birth of the church found in the book of Acts, there was no church. The church was founded in the book of Acts. The church will be the entity on the earth until Christ returns and he calls the church home, right? So there is a world before the church. There is a world now outside of the church and there will be a world here, right? There'll be a world here when the church is gone. So let's take, for example, Old Testament believers. So, so go with me. I want you to see this. Go all the way back with me to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. We're just going to look briefly at a couple groups of people that will be part of the kingdom. We'll talk about how they got there, and we're going to be done for today. Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19 is where... Moses uh, meets God on Mount Sinai. And when Moses meets God on Mount Sinai 
in Exodus chapter 19. Verse 1, or well, let's just pick up verse 2. When they set out from Raphidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness. These are the Old Testament believers. These have been rescued from Egypt, right? These are the Hebrew children, the Israelites, the, you know, they're, they're God's people in the Old Testament. And here's what God says. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him, verse 3, from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Uh, Chuck Swindoll has a great sermon entitled uh, From Eagle's Wings to Hornet Stings founded upon this passage. Great. I stole that title. I'll use it myself. But it came from Chuck Swindoll. By the way, when you read the Bible and you believe the Bible literally, that means we believe it in its normal grammatical historical literary sense. That means the Bible does allow for similes, metaphors, and analogies. Some people who would say, who are critics of the Bible, say, You can't believe the Bible literally. Do you really think that he took two and a half million people and put them on the back of an eagle? And no. But what it means is, is that you understand the Bible in its normal grammatical, historical, literary sense, and therefore you understand that not everything is in the Bible is taken as analogy. Right, I know people that they totally dismiss the literal, normal reading of the Bible, and they're always looking for secret meaning, special meaning, special codes, and all of these things. No, this is a metaphor, right? This is telling us. This is God saying, "Hey, I rescued, I redeemed you." He says, "How I, how what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be. Now look at this: my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now look at verse six: and you shall be to me a king." Kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So God looks at these who are his believers. Now, not every Jew is going to do that, but the believers in God. These who, right, who as, as Abraham in Genesis, who believed God and it was credited or counted him as righteous. These who, when they died, the wrath of God passed over and waited until it could be poured out on Christ on the cross. These Old Testament believers in God are going to be in the kingdom. And the reason they're going to be in the kingdom, even though they're not part of the church, is because they are going to be in the kingdom through the the finished work of Christ on the cross, they're in the Old Testament looking ahead, anticipating Christ's work on the cross. And when Christ dies on the cross, listen, that per, the purchase of their pardon happened at the cross and is applied by them. So God saw their faith like he saw Abraham. Abraham, the Bible says in Genesis and in Romans, he believed God and it was credited or counted to him as righteousness. 
Now, Abraham was still a sinner and his sins still had to be forgiven. And Abraham's sins were forgiven in the future when Christ died on the cross because he died believing in God and believing the truth of God and believing that God would send a rescuer, redeemer, Messiah, anointed one because they went to their grave believing God. They went to their grave and when Christ died on the cross, he pardoned their sins as well. Some say, and I'll let you wrestle with this yourself, that that's the reason when Christ died on the cross, when he rose again, remember the Bible said that the Old Testament saints rose with him. That's the thing about him. It's only one gospel. But Old Testament saints came to life. So the Old Testament saints can be brought into we, we see this in Daniel. Look in Daniel chapter 12. We'll move ahead to Daniel. Uh, <clears throat> Daniel is the... Uh, uh, if you turn to the right in your Bible, you go past Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and all those things. Before you get to Hosea, if you find Hosea, turn left. You went too far. <laughs> Daniel chapter 12 is a fascinating book, and we'll study the book of Daniel. We've studied parts of Daniel when we did our prophecy series in the past. But Daniel chapter 12 says this in verse 1. Now at the time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. So this is talking about the tribulation, talking about the great tribulation time. Notice verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground. So, so verse 1 is talking about the tribulation period. That's Revelation 6 through 18. Chapter 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. Now notice that these two everlasting life. Right? But there will be others who will. Right? Who will awake. Others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So if you look at that, that aligns exactly with what the book of Revelation says, because the book of Revelation says, right, what Paul writes in Thessalonians, right, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we rely on me. But then, right, the, the, the judgment of the dead and those who will be cast into hell uh, there. So the resurrection, the resurrection happens, uh, and the judgment or, or the reward happens at two different stages. Right? Save people. They go to the Bema Seat of Christ to receive the reward. The crowns led to Jesus for all of eternity. Lost people are raised. They go to the great white throne judgment where they are um, shown their guilt before God and cast into everlasting destruction. You remember uh, we looked at Isaiah 24 a few weeks ago as well where it talks about the kings of the earth where after many days they will be judged as well and cast in. So there are multiple periods of judgment and times when people will ultimately be cast. But, but basically, here's the resurrection. Some, some to everlasting life and, and, and others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. 
Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Um, and if you will, just just go down, if you would, to verse 13 for the sake of time. Look in verse 13. And the Lord says to Daniel, But as for you, go your way to the end. Daniel, you're going to live your life. You're going to go your way to the end. And you'll die. Then you will enter into rest. Now that's not the end, praise God. Because notice what it says. And do what? And rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. So Old Testament believers who died, they're going to be raised and they're going to be given their allotted portion. They're going to be part of the kingdom. Exodus 19, Old Testament believers are part of the kingdom. So what we have, we have New Testament believers part of the kingdom. We have Old Testament believers part of the kingdom. There are many, particularly those in the amillennial camp, camp who deny the, the thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth. They say that we are already reigning and ruling because if you're a part of the kingdom, then you're already reigning and ruling. But the Apostle Paul would have a very different perspective of that. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 on our way back to Revelation. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Part of the kingdom, but being part of the kingdom doesn't mean that we are yet reigning and ruling. Still, on Daniel uh, verse thirty-nine. Look at all those kingdoms you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Look at them. Um, now, those are worldly kingdoms. So, between worldly kingdoms and heavenly kingdoms. So, when you die and enter into uh, the portion of you, that's the heavenly kingdom. Okay. Now when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is, is kind of talking to them about all of the, the issues and problems that, uh, that, they, that they've been having. And basically what he says here in um, 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 4 is um, he's giving them a hard time in verse 7. He says, for remember, this is a very troubled church. They had divisions. They had sanctions. They were following. I mean, all these things going on. Just a terrible, terrible church. And the Apostle Paul says in verse 7, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And so he's kind of using sarcasm. This is Pauline sarcasm, verse 8. He says, You're already filled. You have already become rich. And you have become kings without us. So the Apostle Paul, though these people might have been acting like they were reigning and ruling and we are something and somebody, Apostle Paul says, look at this, you've already become kings without us. How did you do that? How did that happen? That's, that's Pauling sarcasm. Paul did not think that they were already reigning and ruling in the kingdom. And he says, he says this, You've become kings out of us, and indeed I wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. They were saying that they were more spiritual, more of a Christian than the Apostle Paul was. And he used his heart and said, Oh, I wish that was true because you'd be reigning. And basically what he's saying, you're not reigning. All these Christians that are going around here, I'm not going to get off on this. We don't have time naming it and claiming it and shouting all these things and demanding this, demanding that, are living as though they are reigning now. And beloved, number one, that's not what it's going to be like to reign in the kingdom. And number two, we're not reigning now. 
You know what we are? We're in a time of distress. We're in a time where we need to be praying and gathered and we need to be strengthened and we need to write all of these things. We're, we're not reigning. We're kingdom citizens. We're part of the kingdom, but we do not yet reign as the kingdom, as in the kingdom yet, but one day. Well, who else is in the kingdom? Who else is in the kingdom? Go with me, if you would, to uh, the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation, chapter. Um, let's look at let's look at Revelation chapter twenty. Revelation chapter twenty. We learn of another group that's going to be reigning and part of the kingdom of God. Now, let's be clear again, just a reminder, that all of these will be there and be part of the kingdom through the work of Christ. Right? You don't get there any other way. So Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, the Bible says, And then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw, now look at this, now who are we talking about? And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus Christ and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. Now, this is not just those who have been beheaded. It's the idea of those who were in the tribulation. But rather than, right, so they became Christians during the tribulation. They were alive when the tribulation started. They had rejected Christ. Through understanding perhaps the things that, are left, that have been left behind, perhaps through reading the scriptures and things along those lines, they become to, they came to understand though they missed the calling out of the church, the rapture. They've come to understand who Christ is, and they've repented and believed the gospel. And because they're believers, they rejected the mark of the beast. They were they were killed in the midst of the tribulation. That's this group of people. Okay, that's this group of people. Notice what it says. It says they they who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand and they came to life. Now look at this. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So in other words, those who are saved during the tribulation, those saved during the tribulation, though the church had been established and called out of the earth, they're never part of the church. Church is gone. Church is no longer here on the earth. Where's the church? Because the church is people. And where are the people? In heaven. Yet they get saved. They don't retro into the church. The church is gone and done. The church age is over. Yet they are part of the kingdom through the work of Christ on the cross. Revelation chapter chapter 5. Revelation chapter chapter 5. Last verse. Verse 9. And, and they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now look at this. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Last point. 
The kingdom of God is bigger than the church. But every person now, hope I've convinced you biblically, every person that's in the kingdom of God comes in by way of Christ and His finished work on the cross. Old Testament believers looking forward to the cross. New Testament believers looking back to the cross. Those who died, or those who were saved during the tribulation period through the finished work of Christ on the cross that they purchased and pardoned. And you can make a case also for those who were born in the tribulation. They did not reject Christ before. It's another study for another time. But those that are born in tribulation, that raised, that get saved, that believe, will be part of that as well. Though they never had an opportunity to reject Christ before he, uh, before he came back and called us home. So we come back to Revelation chapter 1. We have to understand this. Revelation chapter 1. Jesus, I love this. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, verse 5, the first one from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, number one, released us from our sins by his blood, number two. He has made us to be a kingdom. Now we have that word, priests. What in the world is that all about? What does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? Next week, we'll come back and we have to understand the kingdom of priests and the priesthood of the believer. Beloved, I want you to understand this. No one is part of the kingdom of God without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You're not part of the kingdom because you attend church. You're not part of the kingdom because you read the Bible. You're not part of the kingdom because you stopped sinning. You're still guilty before God for the sin that you've committed in the past. You don't, you don't become part of the kingdom because you just say, Oh, well, I'm going to get my life right and become part of the kingdom now. No, no, that, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. Beloved, you will die and go to hell from a church chair, if you will. A mall chair that we do church in, I guess. I don't know. You will die and go to hell with full knowledge of the gospel, of the plan of salvation, and a correct image and view of who God is. And never, ever, never, ever have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of the Beloved. In the domain of darkness that lost people live under now, it's ruled by Satan. There is no such thing as grace and mercy. Grace and mercy is only found in the kingdom of God. You're ruled by a tyrant rather than reigning and ruling with a servant leader who sacrificed himself for you in order for you to be part of the kingdom. You are living in the domain of darkness rather than the kingdom of light. You cannot, you do not automatically, just because you want to, you just not automatically go and pronounce yourself a Christian and go. Beloved, it's not what you pronounce yourself to be. It's what God pronounces you to be. 
And the path to do that is this transaction has to take place. You stand condemned, guilty before God. And when God looks at you, He's ready to pour out His wrath on you. And it's only the grace of God that holds His wrath back from being unleashed, unloaded on you in full capacity. That's who you are in the domain of darkness. And until you see God in His profession and God in His holiness and you in your utter sinfulness, worthy and deserving to die that death uh, and spend eternity separated from God in hell, beloved, you are not saved. You have to be lost before you'll ever get saved. And when you understand in hopeless, utter despair that you can't save yourself, beloved, you see who God is. Where is my hope? Where is my Redeemer? My Redeemer is in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of Christ. That's where my hope is. It's not hope in me, in my decisions, and my choice. I don't want you on that day that you're laying there waiting to take your last, wondering, or is it going to be okay in the kingdom? Have I done everything that I need to do? Beloved, it's not about what you do. It's about what God has done. And until you cast yourself upon Him, and until you come to the place that you repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and confess Him as Lord then, beloved, you are not saved. You don't get saved reading the Bible. You can get saved by reading the words of the Bible, but reading the Bible itself as religious activity will not save you. But understanding the truth of God's Word and God applying this truth to your life and to your heart is how you are saved. I do not want anyone here today or who listens to this message who thinks that they're saved who've never repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about whether you've accepted Him, beloved. It's about whether He has accepted you. And when you repent and believe and confess Christ as Savior and Lord, and you're unashamed to be identified, to pass through the baptismal waters, and to let the world know that you've been redeemed by faith, you can believe, and your life will demonstrate that you have been saved. But apart from that, beloved, you are still a citizen, a great citizen, a wonderful citizen, one that the devil would love to have in the domain of darkness because you're not giving him any trouble at all. Only to one day be cast into the lake of fire, separated from God forever. Rather than transfer Colossians 1 into the kingdom of the Son of the Beloved who loves you and who gave himself for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us and sending Jesus to live the life that we could not live, to die the death of that cruel cross in our place upon which we should have died in order that we could be saved, forgiven, redeemed, and transferred into the kingdom of the Son of the Beloved. Father, I pray right now for each person in this place. I pray for each person who would listen to this message. I pray, Father, that you would have your will and way in their life. I pray, Lord, for conviction of the Holy Spirit of God where that is appropriate for those who are lost, who are not yet redeemed. Father, would you grace them and bless them with a sense of conviction and unease, knowing that they themselves are not yet, have not yet been transferred into the kingdom of, of Christ. 
And Father, I pray that you would show them their sin, that it would be a repulse to them, that they would come to the place that they hated, in order that, Father, they would come to you and cast themselves at the foot of the cross, received by grace and mercy, forgiveness of sin, and be brought into the family of God and transferred into the kingdom of life. Father, I pray that, Lord, that you would help us as believers who have been saved to live our lives um, growing in ever-increasing capacity of all it means to be a child of God, to be forgiven, to be given spiritual gifts, to be part of the kingdom, that we will one day reign and rule with him. So, Father, all of us have areas of growth that we can apply because of this message. And, Lord, we're going to keep Pastor Chad Tucker here from Doxa Church in Burlington, North Carolina. Thank you for joining us in our study of the book of the Revelation. To learn more about our new ministry and to find out about how you can partner with us, visit us online at doxaburlington.com. That's D-O-X-A Burlington.com. We hope you enjoy the message.